This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Dan Millman. Dan Millman is an author and lecturer whose semi-autobiographical book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, first ignited the public imagination almost 40 years ago. Dan Millman has authored 17 books, which together have been published in 29 languages. In 2006, his first book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, was adapted to a film, Peaceful Warrior. With Sounds True, Dan Millman has created a new audio learning program. It's called The Complete Peaceful Warrior's Way, a practical path to courage, compassion, and personal mastery, where he reminds his listeners that life comes at us in waves of change that we cannot predict or control but we can learn to surf these waves with perspective and resilience. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dan and I spoke about how our everyday life can be like spiritual weight training and the 12 areas of life that we are each called to master. We talked about Dan's definition of faith and how it's a lens that he uses to see life as a school one that's been designed for our learning. We also talked about the spiritual lessons Dan's learned from physical disciplines, such as Tai Chi and Aikido, why it's important to drive like a Zen master, various kenshos or enlightenment experiences in Dan's life, and finally, how to die psychologically in meditation and be a peaceful warrior in the contemporary world. Here's my conversation with Dan Millman. Dan, I want to begin by talking a little bit about your own autobiographical story that you present in allegorical form in The Way of the Peaceful Warrior in terms of the relationship between disillusionment and the spiritual path, and how that link existed, if it did, in your own life, and what you have to say about that, how those things can really be linked for many of us. Sure. As, as many of your listeners understand, the word disillusion uh, sounds negative, but it also could be interpreted as a freeing from illusion, disillusion. So I think one of the reasons, Tammy, that uh, I ended up exploring as much as I did is I was sensitive to this process of disillusion. I was fortunate enough to come from a fairly stable environment as a youth, uh, and I had a measure of success in the sports arena and did fine in school and so on. So my life seemed to be going well, and yet I, I noticed I, 
nothing seemed to last. Um, happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment was just until the next thing, which is not a bad thing as I look back on it. But at the time, I started to explain where is happiness, fulfillment? What are we here for? I don't know why I had those questions, but maybe it was because my attention was freed from other struggles in other areas. And so I began to try uh, you know, I tried sports and I trained in martial arts and I was very much into self-improvement, but I saw that in a sense as a never ending process. And no matter how much I improved myself, only one person benefited. So it's somewhere along the line, I started noticing that if I could somehow influence other people in a positive way, that, that would bring more meaning to my own life. Not everybody has that calling, but it was for me. So I began as a teacher and I taught what I I knew well, which was gymnastics. I started in that arena and that translated over to a gymnastics coaching job at Stanford University and then a, a professorship at Oberlin College in Ohio. But all the while, I kept exploring for myself, where is happiness? What does this mean? And over the years, uh, it, it seemed to evolve into rather than just seeking a good feeling, was more about uh, seeking meaning. Uh, knowing that my life counted for something and purpose and direction, which I think many of us are are seeking beneath that surface of I want to be fulfilled and I want to feel good and I want to be happy. So that is sort of a compendium of my journey and how disillusionment took me there because it was like that old, uh, I guess it's a Vedantic technique, neti, 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 not this, not this, not this. I found, you know, it's the old, kiss a lot of frogs before you find your prince or princess principle. Um, I found out what didn't make me happy. And that continuous search led me into what we would call spiritual realms, life's bigger picture, um, and which finally integrated more into the everyday life. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say someone's listening right now, and they have a sense in some way of feeling disillusioned in their life. Maybe a relationship has ended that was an important relationship, or there's some sense that their work in the world needs to shift. You know, I think it's really interesting that you pointed out, I hadn't thought about it, the word itself, disillusioned, that we're dropping our illusions. But what would you say to that person who's in that state of mind right now listening? Well, illusions can be wonderful. Um, we, we see it in movies and everywhere else. And uh, magical thinking and wishful thinking and, and love lasting forever. Um, those kinds of illusions, um, well, I don't know that they are. I mean, my wife and I are still very much in love after 43 years of marriage. So it, it's, uh, it can last a long time. But I think awareness heals. Awareness of a problem is the beginning of the solution, but it's not always pleasant. So I am not implying that someone saying, I'm so disillusioned is a really positive experience. It usually isn't. And yet when we have that difficult relationship, we learn from it. Um, and as I point out on you know, our new audio program, the, the Peaceful Warrior, you know, the complete Peaceful Warrior's way, um, that our lives are about learning. It's a fundamental purpose of life, that daily life and this process of disillusionment, of, of starting to see reality more and more clearly and how life works is a gradual evolution and maturation process. So though it isn't pleasant, 
we need to hold to that thread of attention that it's always useful. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the next relationship, we, we become disillusioned once, maybe the next one will, will bring more resources to that, more understanding. Now, I read, Dan, in preparing for this conversation, an interview in which you defined faith as the courage to live as if everything that happens to us is for our highest good and learning. And I wanted to talk with you about that because on the one hand, I love that definition, but then I have the other hand. And on the other hand, the thought that I have is, well, gosh, you know, you can just look at everything as if it's a learning experience and you're kind of putting that spin on life and is that really what's happening here, or is that just a way to interpret life so we can hang in there and keep learning? Well, we do interpret life. Everybody, uh, you and me and all the listeners, um, look at life through a filter of our own projections, beliefs, values. Um, we, uh, you know that saying, as it goes, we, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. Our own, we do put our particular spin. So if we're going to put a spin on reality, the, sim- the simple mystery of life arising in the moment, the Zen ideal of just isness or suchness, things as they are without all the complications we add, while we're adding those complications, we might as well add positive ones. So for example, um, do I know that everything that happens is for our highest good in learning? I can't know that. I can't say that for sure. But I'd rather look at life that way than saying um, life sucks or um, I'm being punished by God or I don't deserve any better. I mean, we have all kinds of spins uh, on reality. So the idea of defining the law of faith as courage to live as if first one should first notice that I'm not asking anyone to believe anything. I'm not saying faith is a belief in this or that. Um, I'm saying it's the courage to live as if, which means we don't know if it's true. But if we live as if everything that happens is for our highest good in learning, um, then it does put that positive spin on it, the possibility that we are learning. I used to joke with people about being a writer. You know, I said, if you're a writer, everything is material. And, and if I'm ever scraping myself up off the street, I can go, wow, this is going to make some great material. It doesn't mean I like or welcome that particular experience, but I can use it. And that's how we can approach life. I often use the term spiritual weight training, the difficulties and challenges of everyday life, which do arise. It's what life is about. It's spiritual weight training. And we get stronger. So I think it's, it is a positive way to look at uh, the world in, in which we live. Now, you could bring up another what if. Uh, or on the other hand, which is, well, wait a minute, Dan, it's easy for you to say you're living a basically upper middle class life, um, almost an entitled existence, not deliberately, but that's my situation um, in life. And so it's easy for me to say everything that happens is for our highest good in learning. Um, what about someone who lives in uh, Yemen or another impoverished area or war torn area? They're a refugee. They're people whose lives are extraordinarily difficult. And uh, they do have a clear sense of purpose, which is survival. Um, and there is that one small plus in an otherwise difficult environment. So it's easy for me to talk about everything that happens is for our highest good. What about them? Would I tell them something like that? Actually, I would. 
because we have to get out of abstractions. You know, when we talk about things like the third world or developing countries, that's an abstract idea. If you actually go to those places and speak with those people, they're just like us in the sense they want to be loved, understood. They want to live in security. They want to prosper. They want to have safety for their family and themselves. We're all alike in that way. And some of those people in very difficult situations, war-torn countries, um, they may be kind. Others may be more callous. Some are more generous. Some are not. Some own two goats. Some own one. Um, so when we get down to specifics, it still holds true that everything that happens to them um, is going to be a learning experience, a human soul being educated on planet Earth. I'm not wise enough to know why I'm in this situation and they're in that one. Luck of the draw, let's say. And those of us who are lucky, who are fortunate, uh, we can do what we can within our life space, whether it's making contributions, donations, um, thinking globally, acting locally. So the truths remain the same. And uh, one shouldn't be distracted by, well, easy for you to say, Dan. Yes, it is. But I've shattered my right leg in a motorcycle crash. I've had disappointments. I, when I was young, I was divorced. I know the pain of that and difficult relationships. So we all have our own life experience, as Plato said, be kind for everyone is fighting their own battles. Now, it's interesting, Dan, that you place this emphasis on looking at life through the lens of learning. And you say this is a, a lens that you're choosing to pick up. Do you think of life as a type of school? Absolutely. Um, it's one of the basic premises of this approach to living I call the Peaceful Warrior's Way. And in a, in a book I wrote called The Four Purposes of Life, the number one purpose is, based, is learning life's lessons. And it's based on that fundamental idea that planet Earth functions as a divine school and daily life is our classroom. A school for souls, if you will. Again, do I know this? No. But I think it's an empowering and resourceful way to look at the world. And what that means is I'm suggesting that daily life and the challenges we meet in daily life and the pleasures and joys as well, they are guaranteed to teach us everything we need to learn to evolve as human beings. So what I'm saying is one doesn't have to listen to my audio program or read any of my books or anyone else's in order to evolve as a human being. People were evolving on planet Earth before there were books and seminars. So, but you might say, well, Dan, then why do you write books and teach seminars and, and whatnot? Uh, and the answer is good reminders. And that's all I can do is offer reminders and perspectives, but they can be useful. They can help us learn the lessons of life more easily and gracefully. So we don't have to go through as much crap, if you will. Um, we can learn easier lessons. And there's, there's a favorite story. It's about a man who was given a parrot. And he loved this bird. It's beautiful, very intelligent. Parrots live a long time. And of course, it could speak too. It could learn to talk. And someone had taught this parrot to curse like a sailor. Uh, it was just an incredible creative uh, use of invective. And, and so 
he was embarrassed by this. You know, John's mother would come over and friends would come over and this bird would start cursing. And he tried everything to reform this bird. He tried playing Anya and other new age music. He, he tried sending him to a bird therapist and nothing seemed to work. Taught it affirmations, nothing worked. So finally, one day, John reached the end of his rope and the end of his patience. The bird was cursing and he grabbed the bird, opened the freezer door, shoved him in the freezer, shut the door. And he heard muffled cursing and squawking inside. Suddenly though, dead silence. And he was concerned. He said, oh, I hope I didn't hurt the bird. I did. And he opened the door, reached in and, and a shivering uh, Maurice, that was his name. The bird, the parrot walked out on his arm and stood on John's shoulder and said right in his ear, he was a very articulate bird. He said, John, I realize, you know, I had a revelation in the freezer and I realize that my language needs cleaning up. My behavior needs uh, improvement. And I'd like to ask your forgiveness, John. And I vow to do better in the future. Well, that was very pleasing for John to hear. But then the bird added, by the way, John, um, when I was in the freezer, I, I noticed a chicken in there wrapped up in plastic with his head cut off. Can you tell me what the chicken did wrong? <laughs> so again, the bird was giving us all a lesson. We can learn easier lessons, which he wanted to learn, or more difficult ones. Life throws ping pong balls before it throws bowling balls. And in terms of learning, most of us have noticed that lessons repeat themselves until we learn them again and again, until we finally get the lesson. We know we've learned a lesson when either our perspectives or even better, our actions change. Then we know we've learned the lesson. Uh, and if we don't learn the easier lessons, they get more dramatic. And it's, it's a perfect school in that way. And so learning sounds a little mundane. We're used to the academic situation in school and learning rote kinds of things. But this is the school of life. And, the, and as it happens, there are 12 courses we're here to master or at least gain facility in, in order to graduate, in order to be truly ready to transcend for spiritual life and so on. And those 12 courses I've written about in, in another book called Everyday Enlightenment. So it, it deals with these 12 courses in the school of life. But what I find fascinating, and I discovered this several years ago, is I've had a recurring dream in my life, Tammy. And the reason I'm sharing it with you now and your listeners, because I believe everyone has had that dream, whether or not they remember it. But many people will remember it when I describe what it is. It's that situation where I have an important exam in school, mm -hmm. like a final exam or midterm, but I can't find my way there. Or even more common, I realize I'm going to this exam and it shocks me to realize in the dream that I signed up for the course, I've got the exam, but I never went to class because I forgot I signed up for the course. Now I've got to take this final exam. It's a typical anxiety, academic anxiety dream. But many people say, hey, I've had a dream like that too. And the reason I believe many people have had that dream is because that describes our situation in everyday life. We're being tested all the time, but we don't know what courses we signed up for. And I'm not going to probably take the time now to go do more than just quickly list them just so people get a sense of the scope. But I go into this in more depth in our audio program. So the courses are discover your worth, uh, reclaim your will, energize your body, manage your money, tame your mind, trust your intuition, 
Accept your emotions, face your fears, illuminate your shadow, embrace your sexuality, awaken your heart, and serve your world. And I believe we're here to learn or gain facility in all those arenas. And that doesn't add a burden to anyone's life because we're all working on those areas. Life is a little bit like that game whack-a-mole. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Most people do. Because one thing pops up and then we take care of it and then something else pops up. That's part of our learning in everyday life. I have a question, Dan, about how you came up with these 12 courses in the School of Life. How did you develop these 12 neat categories? I'm glad you asked that because it's a, a pretty interesting mystery, I think. I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, something has happened to me where I can ask internal, when I ask a sincere question, a good question, the answers just come. Um. You know, when just as one other example, um, years ago, I was working with one of my mentors and we were teaching a, a training together up in Alaska to a group of therapists. And he said, we need to teach them an exercise program that is really simple, short, that they'll actually do that's practical. And, he, and so I ended up, he told me, he, he tasked me with coming up with this. And I sat down in a semi-meditative state and based on all my experiences in gymnastics and martial arts and dance and yoga and so on, I just went, okay. And boom, these 16 exercises came. One, two, three, four, touched every part of the body and so on. And again, I teach that. I call it the Peaceful Warrior Workout. I've been doing it every day for 30 years and I've been teaching it for that long. Um, So that's one example. Another example, to your point, is that when I was on author tour, going around lecturing and giving many, many talks and interviews about one of my books called The Life You Were Born to Live. Um, it's a very popular book of mine. Um, and it, I also cover, address some essential elements of that on our audio program. I cover almost everything in some sense. Um, while I was doing that, I wanted people to understand while I was on tour that, that wasn't, my work hadn't just turned to a numerological system. It was just one facet of my work. And that led to the question, well, wait a minute, what is my work about? What is personal development? What is personal growth? We use that term all the time, spiritual growth. And when I asked that question, it came to me and I started writing down what areas comprise the entire field of personal growth. And many people will say, um, well, it reminds me of a New Yorker cartoon where Um, it showed a man in a hospital bed and he was wrapped in plaster and tape all over his body. He'd been apparently a big accident, Um, but his feet were okay. And there was a doctor standing there with his arms crossed, smiling, saying, you know, as a podiatrist, I'd say you're a lucky man. In other words, from the podiatrist view, a foot doctor, he was a lucky man because his feet were okay. Mm-hmm. And, and many people specialize in one aspect of life. They're fitness experts or health wellness experts or they're financial uh, uh, coaches or uh, they're relationship experts. So they, they take on one aspect of life and that hasn't been my calling. I'm a very good generalist. So I wanted to see the big picture. What is personal growth? What is it comprised of? And if one explores those 12 areas I listed, uh, and I do explain what they mean and how, why they're important and how we can improve in those areas. 
um, when we grasp that, that really covers the entire area of what we call personal development. And we, we learn those lessons in everyday life, I should add that. Now, it's interesting, Dan, that you kind of leave it up to the mystery how these 16 exercises that make up the Peaceful Warrior workout just came to you and how these 12 areas. Was there some change in your life where, for lack of a better way of saying it, you got out of the way and this sense of having the ability to receive downloads or intuitive knowings just started coming to you? Well, I think you put it very elegantly. I love the term downloads. I, I believe, I've been asked that and I've considered it, and I believe it's because of my commitment to share what I've learned. People who've read Way of the Peaceful Warrior go, sometimes I'm a little sad because I wish I had a teacher like Socrates. Uh, for those who don't know my book, he's the old mentor played by Nick Nolte in the movie version of the book. Um, but he was my old mentor, old gas station attendant uh, in Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And they said, I wish I had a teacher like Socrates. And I think they're missing the point because he is their teacher. If they've read the book, I, I'm not here to hoard what I know, to hoard what has made me happy, some approaches to life, some reminders and perspectives. I love to share that. So because of my commitment to share with other people, I think it kind of opened a channel where I was gifted with some of these notions. I mean, we all have creative ideas now and then and come up with ideas, but they just came because of my commitment and to be a, a clear channel to, to share them with other people. And that's probably why I was able to, in a sense, get out of my, get out of the way. I think that's beautiful. It's really the 12th lesson in the school of life that you referred to, mm -hmm. serving your world, a sincere yes. commitment to serve. That's beautiful. I'd love to interject here um, that my favorite movie, I would have to say, is Groundhog Day. Now, many people smile if they've seen the movie. They go, oh, that was a cute movie, a romantic comedy, right? A bit metaphysical. But it's much more than that. There have been rabbis and priests and Sufis and Zen masters. They've all said, that's our movie. Because this, this selfish, self-centered guy goes through all these changes, including deep depression. He kills himself a hundred times. A thousand times, but every time he keeps waking up at 6 a.m. in the same town uh, and goes through his learning. And someone once calculated he probably went through 3,000 years of the same day over and over. But at the end of the movie, and I'm not really spoiling it, believe me, I've seen it many times. It doesn't hurt. It's not a spoiler for those who haven't seen Groundhog Day. But at the end of the film, he is completely committed to service. Not because it's a nice thing to do or because he's going to get some rewards. It's because there's nothing left to do. And I think many of us eventually come to realize it's the only real game in town. If we can make a difference and touch someone's life, even just saying a kind word to somebody, uh, any chance I have to do that, I do it. If it's pick up a little litter off the street when I'm near a trash can and throwing it in. Those little things can make a big difference, and it makes for a different quality of life. So I, I wanted to interject that. Thank you. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. 
we welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, I want to ask you a couple of questions about some of these lessons in the School of Life that I think are really important. They're, they All 12 are, but I'm just going to ask you about a couple of them. The very first one you mentioned, realizing your worth. I think this can be incredibly challenging for people, even people who have maybe done a lot of meditation or have had other kinds of deep insights. There's still this sense somewhere inside that I'm flawed. There's something inherently wrong with me. How do you help people? What insight can help people really realize their worth? Sure. Great question. In fact, many people don't really even understand the term, much less have been able to deal with it, because what our minds tend to do is translate it into self-esteem. And I, I clarify on our, on our program, I know it's in there, um, that self-worth is different from self-esteem. Esteem means liking something or someone. And self-esteem means liking ourselves, feeling good about ourselves, feeling confident. Well, that seems a positive thing when you consider the alternative. But uh, I've never been that invested in self-esteem because there are people with very high self-esteem we call sociopaths. So to me, self-esteem and feeling confident, as nice as that may be, it, it changes all the time. It's a very shallow, conscious idea. We always know our level of self-esteem in any given moment. Some people feel high self-esteem at a party, but low self-esteem on the sports field. For others, it's the opposite. So that changes all the time. <clears throat> Self-worth goes much deeper. Call it the subconscious or unconscious level. It answers the, a deep question of how good of a person am I? Um, how much do I deserve of life's blessings? Ramakrishna, the Indian saint, said, an ocean of abundance and bliss can rain down from the heavens, but if we're only holding up a thimble, that's all we're going to get. So it is a cru crucial area. That's why it's listed first among those 12 areas of life, is to rediscover our innate worth. It's not about feeling worthy. You know, if we do something good, we feel worthy more. And if we do something bad, we feel less. But it's more um, about recognizing, first of all, that we're all flawed. You know, do you remember that, um, that book called I'm Okay, You're Okay? Yeah, I do. It was an old, yeah. Well, Virginia Satir, the, the psych psychologist, had a wonderful saying. She said, I'm not okay, you're not okay, and that's okay. It's, it's a profound acceptance of ourselves in our process in our own stage of evolution and trusting that and respecting it and even embracing it. Um, so we're all learning, we're all stumbling, but that's, that's part of it. So it's not about being flawed, therefore we're unworthy. It's about being flawed, therefore we continue to grow and learn. Uh, I've never met a teacher, a spiritual teacher who didn't have flaws. You know that, I know that, including me. We all have flaws, mistakes, weak points, a uh, certain dorkiness, or sometimes worse. Look what's coming out in the news today. Uh, it's a very healthy period of disillusion uh, in terms of all of the sexual harassment and all that mm -hmm. things coming out in politics today. So again, 
brings us back to circles back to that disillusion. Um, we're seeing our flaws and that doesn't mean someone can't create great art or be an actor or a news commentator or a politician and do the best work they can in their field and still have flaws uh, mm -hmm. and actions have consequences. So, but this idea of worth is not about feeling worthy. It's about treating ourselves as worthy by virtue of being a human being on planet earth. It's about our innate worth, not a sense of entitlement, like we're more worthy than someone else. It's just that we're doing the best we can day to day on planet earth. And the irony of this one topic, Tammy, is that those of us with the highest vision, the highest standards, some of the brightest souls have the biggest self-worth issues because we never meet our own standards. We always see how we make mistakes. But our sense of worth should transcend all that. I'm a human being on planet Earth. I'm a peaceful warrior in training, and as are you and all of your listeners. We, we should base our worth on that. Now, why? Why is it important to have a strong sense of self-worth? Because if we don't, we tend to self-sabotage. We don't feel deserving. We get uncomfortable if something good happens or we get in our own way. That's why it's the first of those 12 areas. Mm -hmm. And I, I do describe um, some of what I've shared with you now on our program. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about being flawed, that we're all flawed, we're all human, I relate to that. And yet the subtitle of the series is A Practical Path to Courage, Compassion, and Personal Mastery. And this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, this idea of personal mastery. How do we understand that we're flawed human beings, but there's a path to something like personal mastery? Wow, I love your questions. Um, first of all, the, the term master is very tricky. You know, in the East, they call someone master this, master that. Um, it's an honorific, like Mr. Or, or, or Roshi or anything like that. Um, mastering implies arriving at a destination, but I'd like to redefine that for the sake of the conversation. Um, and I'll do it this way. Um, to be a master potter or a master sculptor or artist or gymnast or poet, I believe we step onto the path of mastery even near the beginning of our journey, even when our skills aren't very high. We're on the path of mastery as soon as we make one fundamental recognition, what I'm doing, whatever that may be, is a direct reflection of my life. In other words, how I do anything is how I do everything. So when, if I practice gymnastics and I'm barely learning a few fundamental cartwheels, um, but I recognize, you know, Learning gymnastics is a lot like life. It's, it's a metaphor. It's a reflection of my life. I'm on the path of mastery. Many people have become professional athletes, and I'm presuming this, but I believe without ever stepping onto the path of mastery because they haven't connected up their skill level. They haven't broadened it into the arena of daily life, how they're growing as people. You know, I've seen many athletes. I've never seen a dumb athlete. I've seen academically disinclined athletes who don't have skills or maybe even high IQs, but anybody who is skillful moving their nervous system and their body has a smart body and the nervous system's connected to the brain. See, many athletes have learned spiritual laws, universal laws about process, balance, um, presence, 
but they don't know what they know because they're so busy focused on external rewards, medals, uh, scores, winning, losing, records, uh, and they haven't noticed all they're learning about life. So this is the idea of mastery, recognizing, connecting up what we do with the larger purpose and process of our life. By the way, I'm coming to you from Brooklyn, New York. I don't know if you can hear the ambient sound. I don't charge extra for that. The sirens in the background. Very good. Thank you, Dan. So if I understand you correctly, you're defining personal mastery as being engaged moment to moment in whatever is happening in your life in a certain kind of way. I wrote a book titled Body, Mind, Mastery, and the subtitle is Training for Sport and Life. So it is for athletes or dancers or martial artists or anyone who trains in anything about the process of training, but it's sport and life. That is why I call it Body, Mind, Mastery for the same idea. Yes, it is engaged. We're saying, I am learning how to live more. I'm learning about life through this discipline. And the master teachers that I know don't teach a subject. They teach life through a subject. Mm-hmm. So let's, for a moment, go into this idea of these physical disciplines. I know you've studied Aikido and various other martial arts. You, you mentioned coaching, gymnasts. What have you learned specifically from these physical disciplines that would apply to spiritual life for all of us? Well, let me answer that in a bizarre way. For those who remember that movie, The Karate Kid, um, they may remember Mr. Miyagi, the Okinawan, the old gentleman who was a, you know, a humorous and, and terrific martial artist. Um, he used to play around with his chopsticks, trying to catch flies with his chopsticks, seeing if he could grab them. Um, and that came from an old Zen tale about uh, uh, Miyamoto Musashi, who was uh, Japan's legendary swordsman. And uh, the story goes, one day he was in a little inn and you know his sword was there by his side in his its scabbard. And some uh, ruffians saw him walk in and they were impressed by that sword. They wanted to take it basically. They were robbers. And, and so they started making loud comments about him, snide comments, but he ignored them. Was, you know, Miyamoto just picked up his rice with his chopsticks and continued serenely eating. Well, they got more and more aggressive and finally they stood up and started surrounding him, going closer and closer. And just then Miyamoto reached up and grabbed four flies, one, two, three, four, with his chopsticks and put them down. And then he turned and looked at them. By that time, they were running out the door because they'd seen what he just did. They recognized here was a master. It wasn't like the Western thing. Well, well, he's pretty good with chopsticks. What can he do with a six shooter? You know, no, because they did understand that how we do anything is how we do everything. They did not want to tangle with this guy showing that kind of, of skill and ability. So sports are a visible metaphor for excellence, for striving, um, by the way, um, I don't know if we're even going to get to the topic of success, but I never recommend anyone strive for success. Not a good idea. Success is an abstract notion. I recommend people strive for excellence because by striving for excellence moment to moment in what anything we do, whether it's sport, dance, poetry, writing, 
the arts, whatever, if we strive for excellence, we're not only gaining facility and guaranteed to improve over time in anything we practice consciously. We're guaranteed to improve. But more than that, we're not just learning one thing. We are learning skills, basic life skills, persistence, concentration, focus, sometimes courage, commitment. We're developing and honing those skills which carry over into everyday life. They become life skills. So sport is not the main thing, but many times people are grateful to their sport. They say, this was my entryway into the present moment, into being absorbed, into the zone, into flow, whatever term we use. But I do not mean to imply that everybody needs to go out and become an athlete or become a sports person. However, I do recommend some practice, whether it's the practice of meditation, including moving meditation like Tai Chi. Uh, but practicing some physical skill is a wonderful way for us to remind ourselves about how we can learn, how we can evolve. And it's a visible, we see visible improvement over time. If I can share one more uh, story. Sure. Um, I, when, when I turned 60, um, which was, well, at the time of our recording here, uh, about 11 years ago, um, I wanted to do something special for that anniversary. And my wife said, have you thought about learning to ride a unicycle? And I went, wow, what a great idea. So a friend of mine had a unicycle. He loaned it to me and told me to go um, to a large tennis court. It had two courts. It was a big space. It was level, and I could get a death grip on the chain link fence, you know, holding on to it while trying to stay up on this. Anybody who's tried to ride a unicycle knows uh, it's humbling because you get up on it and it goes whoop out from under you. You get up again, try to pedal, whoop out from under you. It feels almost impossible when you first try, even if you ride a bike well. So I practiced and it took, uh, I practiced for two hours the first day. And it took me that long almost to just slowly make my way around the perimeter of this double court. Um, and I, I practiced for the first week and I could, at the end of the first week, I kind of leaned forward and said, okay, let's see how far I can go. And I, I careened rather than rode about six pedals. The second week, I was able to do 12 pedals careening forward without any real control. To make this story short, by the end of the third week, every day I came back, no matter how discouraged I was, I came back for about half an hour and I practiced. And so in, in any case, um, I, by the end of that third week, I could ride figure eights around the tennis court. Something clicked and I could ride a unicycle. And I learned two things from this experience, this physical training experience that I must have learned in gymnastics years before, but I'd forgotten. The first thing I learned was everything is difficult until it becomes easy. And the second thing I learned was even more important. There were a couple of days during that three-week process of learning where everything fell apart. It was a crisis. I was worse than I was three or four days before. And I, it was very discouraging. Many of us have experienced that in practicing something. But then I realized that usually the day after that so-called bad day, I made a breakthrough, a sudden improvement. And it seemed to me that in life, whether it's a crisis in a relationship or in learning a skill, those so-called bad days, when everything seems to fall apart, when our body's confused, our mind is confused, those are the days the learning is really happening. It's transferring from the front brain to the back brain, going deeper, 
like learning to drive a gear shift car. You know how it's very slow at first, then it clicks. Um, so again, doing physical practices teach us these kinds of things that are, I think, quite useful resources for everyday life. So now I face any challenge in everyday life the same way uh, based on what I've learned. I'm curious if in these physical disciplines that have been so magnetizing to you, including riding a unicycle, what have you learned specifically from working with your body, whether that's breathing or relaxation or balance? What would be the most important lessons that you've learned at the body level? Two lessons, I would say. One is that spiritual life begins on the ground, not up in the air. It's so easy to get lost in abstract concepts and elegant ideas, but I always go, well, what do you do with all those ideas? How do you incorporate that into everyday life? Um, there's that story from uh, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior where Socrates tells me that, that knowledge is, or understanding is, uh, is a mental faculty, but wisdom is doing something. Um, and and I, I didn't quite understand. So Socrates uh, and I, I was helping him with servicing a car that had pulled into the service station. And I, he was just telling me uh, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I didn't quite get it. So he said, well, you know how to clean a windshield, right? I said, yeah, I do. And he tossed me the squeegee and said, wisdom is doing it. So there's something about uh, that spiritual life beginning on the ground, doing, bringing it into life by doing it. Doing is understanding. Doing is realization. Um, so that's one thing that physical engagement has taught me. The other is that enlightenment doesn't necessarily happen out of the body. Even though people talk about out-of-body experiences, many people haven't even gotten into their body yet in terms of really fully incarnating. Um, but enlightenment is a, a, a whole body experience. It may be that it's not even a mental experience, that enlightenment is just being a body living naturally in the world, um, like without a head, just living naturally as a body. Uh, so I believe enlightenment may be a physical, physiological phenomenon, not just some mental breakthrough. When you say that, a physiological phenomenon, in those moments, Dan, what does it feel like? Well, I, people, of course, love stories of enlightenment when the, the cosmic aura smacks us alongside the head and we suddenly realize or have a breakthrough. And I have had various experiences. Uh, one time I, I realized in a way I can't fully articulate, it was a, felt like a liberation uh, from emotions, that I still had lots of emotions but they weren't me. And that's easy to say, it's just words. Um, but it, it, I, I couldn't sleep the whole night. I was so excited. It seemed like such an amazing discovery that I can't really articulate. Thus the uh, quotation by Lao Tzu or Chuang Tzu who said, those who speak do not know, those who know do not speak, because you can't really speak in words about transcendent experience. But there was another time I was sitting on a curb in, in Berkeley, California, uh, eating a grapefruit I just bought from a local market. And suddenly something came over me and I was watching cars drive by at eye level because I was sitting on the curb uh, and litter in the street and car exhaust coming out. And suddenly everything was absolutely perfect. I, 
the car exhaust was the most perfect car exhaust I ever saw. And, and the, the litter was absolutely perfect. I was perfect. Everything in the world was perfect. And remember, this was back 1967, 68. The Vietnam War was raging. Horrible time in our history. But I was unable to see anything other than a perfect part of our process unfolding as human beings. I don't know why. By the way, there was nothing in the grapefruit, nothing special, nothing psychedelic, but it was almost like that. Um, I don't know how these things happen, but I do know that I've had many, many Ken shows, uh, a term meaning a sudden insight, a breakthrough, uh, through sports, through practice, that sense of absorption and flow and being immersed in the present moment. It wasn't something I could talk about. It was just there. And I think many of your listeners may have had similar experiences, uh, but they might be looking for something bigger, more dramatic. But we've all had many enlightenments of one kind or another, awakenings, breakthroughs in moments in our life. And many of them are when we're immersed doing something. Mm -hmm. Now, Dan, I want to ask you a question about this discovery. These emotions aren't me. After that night that you didn't sleep and you were like, oh my, these emotions aren't me. Have you found yourself getting caught in emotional experience, like being really angry or something like that? Or do you never really feel yourself caught in the same way again? Ah, That brings up a larger question when people ask me, Dan, have you mastered all that you teach in all of your books? You know, that saying, if we, we tend to teach what we need to learn. I must have needed to learn a lot with 17 books. And, uh, um, and the answer to that question, have I mastered everything, is no, absolutely not. But I am sincerely practicing, and that's all I can ask of anyone. And I'm probably a good example of what I've realized, embodied, and, and I teach. Uh, not a perfect example, but a good one. If I weren't, I'd have no business talking about it. So... That's, that's the first thing that comes to mind when you, when you ask that. Uh, and if you could repeat the question. I it would it like had to, to do with these emotions aren't me. And do you uh, find yes, yourself getting yes. caught in emotions Okay. on occasion? Yeah. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, sometimes I feel angry. Usually my wife, uh, she is so good at pushing my buttons. And, you know, those you're vulnerable to and close to intimates, family. Uh, Ram Das used to say, oh, you think you're enlightened? Go visit your parents. <laughs> so that's, that's a, a litmus test. Um, so, yes, of course, all kinds of emotions arise. And, and one could pathologize my experience because I was going through an extremely painful, depressive time uh, when I had that breakthrough when I realized I'm not my emotions. So one could say I just dissociated uh, and I cut off from my emotions, but I don't feel cut off. And I didn't feel cut off then. I was completely vulnerable, feeling everything intensely. But it was, at the same time, it, was, it wasn't me. It was just these things arising. Um, and many people you know, who meditate for many years uh, report having a more of a distance from thoughts and from emotions. They see them. They acknowledge them, they experience them, but uh, they don't let them run the household, so to speak. Um, so sure, I have emotions and sometimes I identify with them and uh, well, you know, my wife and I'll have like a very brief, and they tend to be very brief, argument about something uh, and I'll be grumpy for about a minute. 
Um, but then it passes quickly. So that's one difference. It doesn't last as long. Do, do you know, if you watch a young gymnast, a female gymnast on the balance beam, when she's just learning and beginning to learn, she'll, have a, she'll lose her balance and fall right off the beam. And I used to coach you know, women's gymnastics as well as men, so I, I know this. And after a while and more and more and more practice, she'll bobble and almost fall off, but manage to, to re- regain her balance. And as she gets better and better to elite levels, she'll still make mistakes, but they tend to be smaller. So you'll barely see any kind of a, a bobble. So she just corrects them. They don't last as long. And that's, I think, the process, two steps forward, one step back. Um, I think even what we call enlightenment is more like a dimmer switch being turned up and down and up and down, but over time, up higher and higher, rather than just one light switch going on permanently, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Now, I also wanted to ask you about the second realization you shared, looking out on the Berkeley streets and seeing the perfection in the litter, the smog, and everything that was there. And I think probably one of the most quoted lines, Dan, from The Way of the Peaceful Warrior is, there is never nothing going on. There are no ordinary moments And you even wrote a book called No Ordinary Moments. And what I wanted to ask you about this is I think that often we can connect to that. Maybe even in this moment, as the person is hearing me quote this insight of yours, No Ordinary Moments, this moment suddenly becomes spectacular in some way, precious, sacred. But then we find ourselves in so many other moments of our lives kind of on the surface, nothing special is happening. It's repetitive. I don't feel, you know, this sense of aliveness and preciousness. Do you have any recommendations when people find themselves in those kinds of seemingly very ordinary moments? Yes, I I do. Um, And there's another line from the movie, there's never nothing going on. Um, if we're bored, we're also probably boring in that moment. Um, boredom generally is watching our mind go round and round. Meditation is uh, learning to master boredom because when you sit down with your eyes closed, there's nothing going on but your thoughts and impulses. And, and that's, that's why kids, when they get older and they start, their lives get more complicated, that's when they start for the first time saying, I'm bored. When are we going to get there? Because they're starting to see the contents of their mind. You don't see that in very, very young children. They're just absorbed in whatever's going on, even though they don't know what it is. So um, in, in the book, what happens is I, um, I'm doing Tai Chi and it's very special. I'm you know, absorbed in the movements, the flow of the, the, the routine, uh, meditative state. And then when I finish the routine, I, I'm wearing shorts. It's the summertime and my, my long pants are nearby. Um, uh, and so um, I noticed some, some young girls watching me and I'm kind of aware of that like, wow, they were impressed with my martial arts movements. And while I was thinking about them, I was trying to put on my pants and uh, I got two feet caught in the same pants leg and I fell over. Um, to their laughter. And that's what I learned in that moment, that there were no ordinary moments, that I was treating one moment as special. Now, um, there there is another more dramatic story where Socrates is watching me in the gymnasium. 
This is after I'd recovered from the broken leg. I was getting back into shape. And I, I did this full twisting double somersault off the horizontal bar. People have seen that in the Olympics and so on. And I stuck my landing, which is good thing. You land and yes, you know, you don't move at all. It's, uh, you aspire to that. And it felt like a good place to stop workout. You know, so I just said, okay, that's it, sock. And I ripped off my sweatshirt, threw it into my workout bag. And then we were walking uh, down the hall afterward. And he said, you know, Dan, that last move you did was really sloppy. And I said, what are you talking about, sock? That was one of the best dismounts I did in a long time. He said, oh, I'm not talking about the dismount. I'm talking about the way you took off your sweatshirt and put it in your bag. And that's, again, he was reminding me I was treating one moment as special, flying off the high bar, and another moment as ordinary, like it didn't count. It didn't matter. And so he pointed that out once again. No ordinary moments. When we can live that, when we can live that, then we've really got something. And he added something to that. I got this line into the movie, actually. Um, He added to that. He said, Dan, the difference between us is you practice gymnastics. He said, I practice everything. And what did that mean? That sounds strange. What does he mean he practices everything? Well, normally we do the laundry, we do our homework, we do the dishes, we do things all the time. But how many of us practice the dishes? Practice the laundry, folding it, for example. Practice doing our signature. Practice walking, practice breathing. The moment we determine we are practicing something with the idea of improving it, we become more absorbed in that. So what if I had practiced taking off my sweatshirt? How gracefully could I do it? Could I breathe while I'm doing it? Could I fold it up properly and put it in and and have that mindset? So that's what he was pointing out. That lesson never changes. And so it's not just a slogan. Oh, there are no ordinary moments, but it's actually a profound teaching. Um, So that's what I would say to address, I believe, address that, that question, that topic. Mm-hmm. And if somebody finds themselves in a moment where they're, let's say you're doing something like the laundry, and you're like, okay, I know this is no ordinary moment, but it sure is feeling pretty ordinary to me. I'm so sick of doing the laundry. God, every week, these pile, you know, how can we snap out of it and reconnect to that feeling of preciousness? Sometimes, and I know you're asking on behalf of your listeners, too. But sometimes when someone asks how, they know the answer. They're really asking what's an easier way, a trick, a technique to do it. And in this case, um, sure, I can tell anyone a technique. Take an object. Now, unless they're driving in their car right now, I would not recommend. And if they are driving in their car, do not text or do anything else. Drive like a Zen master just for one minute. See if you can drive like a Zen master. How would a Zen master drive? Completely focused, secure, aware of everything going on around you. More than normal. It's like, you know how we're listening to the radio or a a podcast or whatever um, while we're driving. But if we're looking for a place, the old days when we didn't have uh, Google Maps or whatever, and we were trying to find an address at night, we turned off the radio. You remember this. Because we couldn't concentrate. We recognize that attention is a zero-sum game. We either... Uh, you know, if, if we're doing two things at once, we're only giving each of them about half or, or relatively speaking, half our attention. Uh, when you're talking on the phone with someone and they're doing email at the same time, you know it. You can tell. You can hear it in their voice. They're not fully there. They're not fully present. So people who think they're multitaskers have to understand 
that we really are splitting attention. We have X amount of attention. We can split into doing one thing or more. So if people want to um, realize in any moment, no ordinary moments, they can just take an object, a set of keys, a glass, a small object, toss it in the air and pretend they have to catch it or they die. They must catch it. With that kind of commitment, they will not be thinking about what they're going to have for dinner that night or what they did yesterday. That's why people like to play frisbees uh, and play musical instruments and perform on, on the stage because it brings them back to that. And so the trick is, you know, look, meditation is a great practice. If you meditate over time, you, you get, uh, you see more into the nature of mind and so on. But if we're the same rascals we were when we open our eyes again and go about our day, then the meditation hasn't contributed to everyday life. We need to start meditating our life. Mm-hmm. That is a pro- practice to start treating our life as if we're catching a frisbee or playing a game or performing before an audience uh, and making it count. And so perhaps a start is just reminding ourselves this is not an ordinary moment. This counts because the quality of our moments become the quality of our lives. And, you know, Michael Murphy in a, in a book he wrote uh, had this wonderful idea, this concept. I think the book was called Golf in the Kingdom, um, but it wasn't just about golf. Uh, it, it, he talked about enjoying the in-between because golfers tend to be really focused when they're swinging the club, hitting the ball and seeing it fly. And then they kind of go semi-unconscious, uh, grabbing their clubs and walking off or getting in the golf cart and driving to the ball. They, most of our life is lived in the in-between. So we need to enjoy and focus on the in-between rather than just on hitting the ball. Now, Dan, there's so many things that I could talk to you about, and there's so much that you cover in your new audio teaching series, The Complete Peaceful Warrior's Way. But there's just one last thing that I really want to talk to you about, which is towards the end of this audio teaching series, which is very comprehensive. As you mentioned, you cover a lot of different aspects of your work that you've delivered in 17 books, you pick here in this audio teaching series certain key themes. And then at the end, you talk about meditation. And you quote a teaching from your new book, The Hidden School, which is really the conclusion to the story of the peaceful warrior. And you quote an instructor in The Hidden School who offers two instructions about proper meditation practice and the instructions that are given by this teacher. First, you must find a balanced posture. And then second, you must die. I thought this is really cool. This is really cool meditation instruction. And I wonder if you can explain it a little bit for our listeners, especially this second, you must die. Yes. Um, that was another one of those things that actually came to me um, years ago when I spoke with the Roshi, and he said, gave those instructions, and I had to think about it. What did he mean, die? Obviously, he didn't mean physically die, but a, a kind of psychological death. And it brought me back to that idea of the Shavasana pose uh, in, uh, in yoga, where people do the corpse pose or lying on their back and relax at the end of a routine to regroup and so on. And it can be treated just as a deep relaxation exercise, 
But Shavasana is really about dying. It is about saying, now I am dead. Now I am no longer on earth. I don't have any of the qualities of life. And I have no attachments, no unfinished business. Because unless we die psychologically, when we sit down to meditate, we're still sitting down pretty much attached to everyday life. We know we're taking a brief respite, whether it's a few minutes or an hour, um, and we're, we're doing things and we have uh, unfinished business, uh, things in process we've got to do with our life physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, financially, decisions we have to make. So we sit down to meditate and all those things still intrude. Uh, yes, we can use them as fodder for the meditation just to notice and let it go. Um, but it still impacts the depth by which we can go. But if we are willing to psychologically die, to sit down and as if we are dead in good posture, then we're ready to meditate properly and go deep. And as a result of this contemplation, I said, well, what does it mean to die? This is just like those 12 areas of life, just like that peaceful warrior workout. I said, what does it mean to die? What, what do we go through? What do we have to let go of? And I've actually created uh, a four-minute meditation on the process of dying. Those who do it will find a profound impact of learning this process, this meditation. I've done it for several years myself. In four minutes, it can serve as a standalone meditation. Where we, and the purpose of it is to embrace life, to reawaken an appreciation for something we almost inevitably take for granted day to day, which is the rarest of opportunities to live a life as a human being on planet Earth. It is so rare. And that's why I present this meditation. That's its usefulness. But it has a secondary benefit for those who already practice meditation of one style or another. This is a wonderful transition into their meditation because first they die going through this process of letting go. Then they're ready to go much deeper in their usual uh, practice. Dan, can you just say a little bit more when you say psychologically die? I'm sitting up and I'm psychologically dying. What do you mean by that? It means letting go of time. Uh, and again, which is letting go of imagination and memory, which is past and future. It means letting go of um, objects, everything that we possess or that possesses us. It means letting go of relations. Anyone we've ever known, loved ones, friends, acquaintances. It means letting go of action, the ability to move, uh, all the responsibilities and duties, and so on. And I take people through the whole process, including the senses. And by going through this process, we really experience, in a bittersweet, a poignant sense of what we release and let go of and must surrender and relinquish in the process of dying. Uh, we let go of all those things. So that's what I mean by just saying you must die psychologically. Once we've done that, it becomes much easier to cut that remaining thread to the self and let go of the self. Uh, and that's part of the meditation as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm just going to end on this question, Dan, which is, it seems for many people that there has never been a more important time, at least in the lives of people of this generation to be peaceful warriors in the world, 
to respond to our political situation, our environmental crisis, as peaceful warriors. And I'd love to hear what you think guidelines are for peaceful warriors who want to respond to what they see as the pain of the world. Sure. I can answer that with another story. Um, during, again, the Vietnam era when I was going to college and I met Socrates, we, he and I were walking down Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. And at this particular time, I was doing a great deal of work on myself, self-analysis, self-observation, meditations, even a self-massage, a Mongolian warrior massage to clear tension, fear-produced tension from bone surfaces of the body. I mean, I was doing a lot of internal processing at the time. And we walked by some posters on the wall, one about oppressed peoples and one about the war and another about um, starving children. And I turned to him and I said, you know, Sock, I feel kind of guilty, selfish, uh, doing all this, you know, navel gazing, all this work on myself when there's so many people in need out there. Shouldn't I be more politically active and do things in the world to make a difference? And he, he apparently didn't hear me or ignored me. But suddenly he stopped and said, hey, take a swing at me. And I said, what? Did you hear what I was just saying? He said, yeah, come on, I'll give you five bucks if you can slap me on the cheek. Go for it. Well, I figured it was some kind of test, Tammy. So I, um, I bobbed and weaved, and finally I took a quick swing at him. And I found myself on the ground in a rather painful wrist lock. By the way, I actually got this scene into the Peaceful Warrior movie a week before they started shooting. Um, as he let me up from the ground, he said, you notice a little leverage can be very effective? And I shook my wrist out and said, yeah, I noticed. He said, well, if you want to help, if you're moved to help the world and help people, he said, of course, do what your heart tells you. Do what you can. But he said, do not become so, such an activist that you neglect the work on yourself because you need that to develop the clarity, to know how to exert the right leverage at the right place at the right time. And that was his point, how to exert the right leverage that I've been trying to do that ever since in my own life, not just through my books and teachings, but in, in my own life when I see a need. Many of us feel frustrated because we feel powerless. What can we do about the larger events happening in the world? We may or may not be able to have a major impact on that, but we can have small impacts. Um, you know, Mother Teresa said, we cannot all do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And... So we do email campaigns or we sign up on email lists to support one or another petition and, or we protest or we do all kinds of things to try to make an impact in the larger world. But sometimes when we don't know, there's an almost magical quality about it, I'd say. When we do a kind word to one person in our immediate environment, we uplift their day. Maybe they'll pass it forward in some way um, without knowing it. They feel a little better. So, I mean, I did something like that this morning, but I'm not going to go into it now. Uh, the point is, we can do things in our immediate environment to help the world around us, our loved ones, our friends, people in our circle. Uh, and that's what I go into in that, that 12th arena of life, serve your world, and how we might be able to do that in small ways that can make a big difference. I've been talking with Dan Millman. Most of us know him as the author of the spiritual classic, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. He's the author of 17 books, and with Sounds True, has created a new audio teaching series. It's called The Complete Peaceful Warrior's Way, A Practical Path 
courage, compassion, and personal mastery. Dan, you have been a wonderful person to share these extraordinary moments with. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Tammy. Thank I you. appreciate the opportunity. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey.